Good morning, beloved. That was kind of anemic. Good morning, beloved. Good morning. I, that's much better. In case you're wondering, uh, if you won't see Pastor, or, uh, Pastoral Intern Ellis White and his uh, wife Rachel and Evelyn and Ezra for a couple of weeks, they are doing a placement down at First Press Fresno with Jeremy Vaccaro. As part of his uh, as part of his seminary training, and uh, so uh, that that's going to be great. In fact, uh, Ellis is preaching for Jeremy uh, this morning, and I think Fresno is going to become Fres Yes after they hear that boy. I, I did tell Jeremy it would be an act of very bad faith for you to try to poach this kid from us. So I'm just telling you, we're loaning him, but we're taking him back when we're done. Just just on record, he assures me that he understands the gravity of my comments there. So. Last week, I was um, with Cindy uh, over at Whitworth at Spokane, uh, Whitworth University. I'm on the board there. I've been there since 1992. I went on the board of Whitworth the, the fall that Rachel was born. Uh, and so it's been a long, long relationship, but it was probably the oddest board meeting I'd ever had. Because by the time that we uh, arrived in Spokane, I had completely lost my voice. It was a comedic, squeaky little nothing coming out there. And so I'm getting ready to, you know, hold forth in stentorian tones in front of the board. And all I can do is, yeah, it was pretty pathetic. Uh, One of my uh, friends, uh, really one of my former friends, uh, (laughs) when he he heard me, he said, our prayers have been answered. (laughs) I thought that was very mean. So I wasn't feeling that well, so we decided to come back early. We made it back in time for um, Saturday worship uh, last week and heard Ellis bring his message. And in the course of that, he challenged us to something. He, if you recall, challenged us. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to say to a friend, and it's a great witness to say, We're gonna, I'm going to pray for you about that when they share a, a concern. He said, but a more powerful moment might be for you to say, could I pray for you about that? Right now. Remember that? Could I pray for you about that right now? And, and then he extended a challenge to the congregation to say, would you pray about that right now? Would you, you know, ask the Holy Spirit to give you the courage to look for those moments and then this week uh, speak to someone when they raise a concern and say, could I pray for you about that right now? So last night I asked and uh, about 20 people raised their hands. Uh, that would be about uh, 15, uh, 10% and 15%. So I'm going to ask right now, how many of you in this last week took Ellis at his word and asked someone, could I pray for you about that right now? Raise your hand. Ellis is going to be so sorry. Keep your hands up. Uh, how many received? How many people did they receive that prayer w- willingly? Did they receive it? How many of you said, get away from me, crazy Christian? Uh, any, yeah, anyone? Well, that's good. Good for you. Good for you. You know, Part of this deal is when we go through the doors of amnesia, trying to resist that, you know, and, and remembering and carrying these things we learn out into, the, into our life. So I hope we'll continue to be a growing church. I'm really, I'm proud of you for that. It's one of the reasons I love being your pastor. We've been journeying, journeying through a book called The Story, as, pa- as Pastor Bill mentioned at the, at the start, uh, this, this epic uh, journey of, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're near the end. Can you believe that? It just seems like we started last week. And throughout this journey, this 30,000-foot journey, we've been really looking for what we've called the scarlet thread. And here's, isn't this cool, this, this uh, portrait or this whatever, banner that was done. It's just very, very cool. The scarlet thread, of course, is the appearance of Jesus, the promise, the, the glimpses that we have of Jesus from the Old Testament on of where, where God was promising, I'm going to send you a Savior. I'm going to restore this broken relationship with my creation. 
Uh, I promise I'm going to do that. And of course, we waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And then two weeks ago, at last, he makes his appearance. At last, the long-awaited anointed one, the Messiah, comes on the scene. And so we were celebrating that. And, and I pointed out in that first chapter, because we've looked at two chapters of Jesus' ministry now. And I pointed out in chapter one of that, uh, that uh, there, there was a pretty common response of the people to the, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, what, was the, what was the response to him? What was the word? Amazed, they were astonished. They were amazed. Amazement was was the response because everything Jesus, I mean, he hit the ground running. He was an amazing uh, miracle worker. He was an amazing exorcist, casting evil spirits out of people. He was an amazing healer, a healer of a lame man and a healer of a, a leprous man and a, a healer of mother-in-laws. I mean, he was he was astounding. Jesus wasn't looking to get famous. As a matter of fact, every time he, he performed one of these miraculous acts of power, he, he would say the same thing, which was what? Yeah, shh, don't tell anybody. But that didn't work so well for him, did it? I mean, it was about as wasted breath as the angels who said, don't be afraid. You know, they're always terrified anyway, so you don't even know why they're saying it. Jesus said, don't tell anyone, and they run right out and, and tell someone. So he didn't want the word to get out, but the word got out, and they were buzzing. That whole region, the northern region of Judea called Galilee, was a buzz. And so, first of all, he, he became famous, and really that first week we looked at his famous acts, his, his miracles, his nature miracles, his, his exorcisms. And then if you were reading through this last chapter, and I know you were because you're such diligent students, this last chapter of the story, the second one of his ministry, really focused on his amazing teaching didn't it? They they alluded to it in the early, in the first chapter that we read, uh, when they said, we've never heard anything like this, but we didn't really get a flavor of it until this last week. And I hope that you entered into it in the same way I invited you to listen to the miraculous acts of Jesus as if you had never heard of this guy. I hope you entered into it as if you gathered around him on the hills around Galilee and listened for the first time to these astounding teachings. What must it have been like to sit down on that little hillside and listen as Jesus for the first time uttered the the Beatitudes? What must it have been like to, to listen for the first time as he preached the Sermon on the Mount? As he challenged people to love their enemies and pray for those who persecuted him? What must it have been like to listen to the greatest short stories ever told? The most sublime and engaging Stories ever told, stories that we take for granted now, but what was it like to hear them for the first time when they heard the parable of the Good Samaritan? And they heard the parable of the prodigal son who was really a prodigal father who poured out his love, ran after his wayward son to draw him back. There must have been tears on their faces. It ought to be the responses that we have too as our cheeks are glisten with the response of the power of his teaching. You know, so if we had been there with that crowd, if we had been listening in, I'm sure we would have said exactly what those folks said for the first time. We have never heard anyone teach like this in our lives. He is amazing. We take it for granted. And I want us to recapture the wonder of it. So we have this amazing miracle worker, amazing exorcist, amazing healer, amazing Lord over nature. And then in this last week, we find an amazing teacher. And honestly, in those early days of his ministry, it was, it was easy to follow Jesus. 
It was fun to follow Jesus. He was the it guy. He was surrounded by paparazzi and, and adoring fans. They couldn't get enough of him. They were packing the streets of Capernaum. It was a traffic jam everywhere he went. But things are about to change. Those were the first two chapters. For the next two chapters, we discover things are about to change. In fact, you get a little hint of the changing mood of his fans in the last few lines of last week's chapter. Jesus was teaching some odd stuff, honestly. Uh, He was saying things like, if you don't eat my flesh and don't drink my blood, you will not have life. Now, on this side of the Last Supper, we know what he was talking about, but it freaked the people out at the time. It, and, and you begin to see a winnowing of the crowd, and we read these words. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And so we see that the shine has gone off of the apple. Mr. Popular has plummeted in the polls. And so his, 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 his managers around him must have said, what, but what do we need to do to recapture market share? What do we need to do to, 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 to burnish this brand that we've been working so hard to develop? What are we going to do to bring Jesus back up in the polls? The answer is nothing. As a matter of fact, Jesus doubles down and he takes it to a harder and an even darker place. And more and more people begin to dissipate. So that's the point where we have come to today. And to share that with you, I want to tell you a story that is one of my favorite because it it took place in one of my favorite places in Israel. If you go with me someday, and I hope you will, we will make a point of going out of our way to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's 30 miles north of Capernaum. It's not easy to get there winding roads, but it is so gorgeous on the foot of Mount Hermon, and it's exquisite. And, And Jesus took the boys up there for a retreat, I think just to get away from the hubbub. And it was there that one of the most important moments in the, in the ministry of Jesus took, took place. So listen again to these wonderful words as we recount that story together. Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you please make these words come to life for us? Don't let us be spectators. May we enter into this moment by your Spirit and live these things ourselves, in our lives, in our hearts. We ask you to help us do this. Amen. So he was an amazing exorcist, amazing healer, amazing Lord over nature, an amazing teacher. Everything about Jesus in those early days was amazing. And everybody was speculating about him. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, when Jesus stopped there on the way north? She said of him, she she wondered, could this be the Messiah? 
And then there was a crowd in the synagogue that says, what is this? A new teaching. Then there were his own terrified disciples in the boat that was threatening to be swamped by the waves and the wind on the Galilee. And they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This this response of incredulity can be kind of characterized, kind of wrapped up in the words that the people of Capernaum offered when they said, we have never seen anything like this. So everyone was pretty much con- con- confirmed in their, in their suspicion that this really was the guy. This was the long-awaited, at last, Messiah. So they were all asking these questions, but this morning, Matthew 16's text is the first time that Jesus instigates this conversation. First time that he asks the question that he asks. So I imagine them because I know this place and, I, and it just it's vivid in my mind. He's up there with the boys. They're walking along. Maybe they're going to have a little picnic. And as they're walking along in this beautiful setting, this verdant waterfalled setting, suddenly Jesus, I imagine him whirling on them and saying, and asks, he asks really the money question. Who do you say that I am? You realize that it is the most important question that ever every human being will ever have to answer. And every human being will have to answer that question. We will either answer that question on our knees on this earth, or we will answer that question on our knees before the judgment throne of God. But every one of us will have to give answer to this question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Jesus asks the boys, in the midst of all this hubbub, the te- all the teaching, all the, all, everything. Who do you say that I am? The, the, the question was actually directed to, to the plural, the ye. Who do all of you say that I am? But Peter, as we would expect, chooses to answer for everyone. You know, we love to make fun of Peter. Uh, and I think it's in part because we kind of see him like a, a St. Bernard puppy. You know, he's big, he's clumsy, he's messy. He just makes a, a mess of everything, but he's so eager, right? You can't help but love this guy. He's just a slobbery mess, but he loves Jesus and he wants to impress him. And in this moment, did he ever? Who do you say that I am, Jesus asks. And Peter looks him back in the eye and he said, You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're you're the one we've been waiting for for thousands of years. And you can almost see the light from Christ's beaming visage as he smiles at him and he says, Oh, Simon, Simon, you know what? You didn't come up with that your own. That's the Holy Spirit that's speaking that to you. You're in tune with the Holy Spirit. God's speaking to you, Peter. And I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you a nickname now. I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Peter, which means what? Rock. It means rocky, actually. Rocky. I mean, before Sylvester Stallone ever came along, Jesus said, you are going to be rocky. Dun, dun, dun. And that was his dun, dun, dun moment. You know, he's standing up there on the stairs in Philadelphia. That was Peter's big moment. He really, he really came through. He says, I'm going to make, I'm going to call you Rocky and I'm going to build my church on the foundation of this solid faith. And Peter was beaming. All those amazing things that they had been witnessing in these weeks and months. 
the amazing miracles, this amazing exorcist, this amazing healer, the amazing teacher, all of it had combined to convince them this really is the guy. And, G- and Peter speaks it out and Jesus confirms it. And you really, it's, it's cause for every one of us to say, huzzah, let's say it. Yes, this was a huzzah moment. Let's you say, let's let's have a party. I mean, this is a big revelatory moment. Huzzah! And then Jesus pulls the biggest buzzkill in the history of the world. Listen to the very next words that he speaks in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed. And on the third day be raised. I'll bet you didn't see that one coming. And I'll bet you they didn't see that coming either. Jesus has finally confirmed what they have suspected all along. That he is indeed the Messiah. And they are excited. And they are parting. And then he said, and oh by the way, we're going to make a trip to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be arrested and accosted and tortured and killed by my enemies. And then I'll rise again on the third day. And they go, say what? I mean, you hear them choking on their tuna fish sandwiches in the background, don't you? I mean, they're, they can't believe what they have just heard. How do you go from this to that? Messiahs. Messiahs are victorious. Messiahs are conquerors. Messiahs rally the world around them. Messiahs don't get arrested and tortured and killed. Jesus, this is crazy talk. What are, you, what are you smoking? Some of them must have been wondering. And, and Peter, uh, deciding he's going to leverage his newfound influence, decides to save Jesus from himself. And, and so we read these, these next words. And Peter took him aside. Let's just pause. Let's just, let's just rest on that one for a moment. Gee, Peter, Jesus was saying some embarrassing stuff. I mean, this is not the language of world conquest, which is what the disciples were pulling for, you know? And, and he's going to get himself in too deep, and there's going to be no, no re- reeling this back in. And so Peter steps up to bail Jesus out. He puts his arm gently around him, but very firmly and, and very graciously, he leads Jesus off to the side so that he won't embarrass him because of what he's about to do. And what is the word that he's used to describe what he does? Rebukes him. Is that rich? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You can't say stuff like that, Jesus. How did Jesus respond to that help? Not real well. Let's take a look at the, the next the next verse, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If that's not the fastest fall from glory, I don't know what is. He went from Rocky to Satan in five verses. That is a precipitous decline, I think you would agree. What in the world happened here? Here's what happened, and this is what we need to see. Jesus is 
redefining their impression of what it means to be a Messiah. He's really, I should say, clarifying it because if you had read Isaiah 53 and they had all read Isaiah 53, this suffering idea would not have come as a surprise to you. But they kind of wiped that part out of their image of what Messiah was going to be. Jesus, though, is reminding them what the prophets had said all along. He is looking ahead to the road that lies before him. It is a road of suffering and of betrayal and of death. And he's saying, listen, that part of my life, my ministry, is as much a part of what it means to be a Messiah as all of the miracles that you are so titillated about. This is as much a part of what it means to be Messiah. In this coming week's chapter, as you're reading diligently through your story, I would urge you to do something that I did. I, every time I came to mention of the death or the suffering of Jesus, I put a cross in the margin. I was astounded at the end of the chapter to discover all but two pages have more, one or more crosses in the margin. The whole of what we're going to read this week is there's a drumbeat of suffering, betrayal, death. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And of course, the response is very divisive. Uh, and you're going to see that in your reading too. In fact, I started putting a little division sign, divided by sign, every time I noticed that there were division because you see the people beginning to slip away. Some believed him, some did not. Some considered him a phony. Some thought he was the, he was the real thing. And so you see this this focus on suffering, focus on death, and, and the resultant uh, abandonment on the part of these people who thought he was so cool. Many who once found Jesus amazing now find him offensive, off-putting. And, and as if things weren't bad enough, it gets worse. Listen now to where Jesus goes. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So get that. Not only is, is this Messiah going to suffer and die, every follower of Jesus must be prepared to do the same. Anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Somehow, in a way that we do not understand, in a way that we do not want, in a way that we would not choose, in a way that we will never relish, the disciple of Jesus will follow their master on a road of suffering. At some point, you will. It is part of what shapes us. True disciples of Jesus will suffer along their journey. And what is our response to that? How about yuck? That's not what we signed up for. Who wants to suffer? We want the first two chapters. We want amazing Jesus. The healer, the provider, the multiplier, the exerciser, the teacher. The, that's the Jesus we want. That's the part we like. But this feels like bait and switch. This part of walking with Jesus in his suffering and his death, that part we don't like at all. And suddenly the fair weather disciples begin to slip away. The, the next two chapters of our story that I'm going to be sharing with you really are probably the, we might call them the cut and run chapters. Because the, the crowds who adored amazing Jesus don't like suffering and dying Jesus one little bit. When Jesus took the girl's dead hand and raised her up. They loved that. When Jesus 
took the leprous man's rotten hand and raised him up. They loved that. When Jesus took the terrified and sinking hand of Peter and raised him up, they loved that. When Jesus told them to take up the 12 baskets of miraculous table scraps, when Jesus told the the lame man at Capernaum to take up his bed and go home, when Jesus told the, the, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda to take up his mat and walk, they loved that. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, they didn't love that at all. Not at all. And neither do we. Neither do we. We all prefer amazing Jesus. We all prefer the Jesus of chapters 1 and 2. The healer, the blesser, the multiplier, the provider. And let me say that is part still of what it means to follow Jesus. He is still all of those things. All amazing. But following Jesus, full picture, will also be at times offensive and hard. The next two chapters are as much a part of what it means to be a disciple as the first two. There are times when each of us will be called to walk the path of suffering and betrayal and death with Jesus. Not because he has failed us as Messiah, but precisely because he uses these moments in a way that he will not be able to use the blessed sweet times. He uses these moments to fit us for eternity, to shape us into the disciples that are fit for eternity. Then those are our cut and run decision moments. Right then. When we decide if we only want to follow the amazing Jesus, or if we will trust that the offensive, hidden, suffering Jesus is also, is still our Messiah. It's hard for us in our society, honestly, to relate to this, to put this to the test. We are, these days, we are whining about how our culture is so mean to Christians and how we have less and less freedoms and it's closing in on us. And, you know, we just don't have a clue. We just don't have a clue. All we got to do is look at the lives of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world to understand what it really means to find that your society has turned against you. I want you to watch a very brief video. It's hard to hear, hard to listen to, but I want you to listen. I want you to read the words, and I want you to capture that. This is a, an Iraqi Christian student, a, 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 an engineering student in Mosul, Iraq, who had to flee uh, because of Islamist fanatics. Listen and read what this young man has to say. Uh, yes, uh, you know, I'm a student in uh, Mosul University, uh, an engineering college. Uh, they gave us uh, three choices. The first one is to be Muslim. Okay. The second is to pay. Mm-hmm. Or uh, if we refuse, they will kill us. Wow. You know, yeah. so difficult. Mm-hmm. For a Christian, uh, they took all, all our homes, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. We lost everything. But we're so proud because we lost everything. We lost our friends, yes? Yes. Because we're still in this faith. Because we're still in this faith. We are so proud because we lost everything. Because Jesus deserved. You know, Jesus deserved all that. Look him, look him. They... Extremists came to him and said, you have three choices. You can convert to Islam, you can pay us a, a, a penalty, or we will kill you. Those are your options. And, and so he fled. And you, you, you read and you 
hear that. He said it is so difficult. Uh, to put it mildly, it is difficult. And how can you not be captured by those last words? We lost everything, but we are so proud because we are still in this faith. And then the parting shot. Jesus deserves all that. Jesus deserves all that. It is not very likely that any of us is one going, they're going to have to stand at the face, in the face of a gunpoint and, and decide whether or not we will confess Christ. But our moment of testing, our moment deciding whether or not it has to only be amazing, will be in the face of suffering for every one of us will. We're going to lose. We're going to lose a loved one. We're going to lose a job. We're going to lose a marriage. We're going to lose a child. We're going to lose a lawsuit. We're going to lose a reputation. And Jesus will seem hidden from us, and we're going to have to decide whether we will follow the hidden Jesus as enthusiastically and faithfully as we follow amazing Jesus. Last November on my birthday, I got a call from my doctor. And he was concerned about some blood work that I'd drawn. And that was the beginning of a a four and a half month period of tests and consultations trying to determine whether or not I had prostate cancer. And, uh, and finally, I said, listen, enough of this. Let's have the biopsy. Let's run towards this giant and figure out what's going on. And so I had the biopsy, and of course, then I had to wait some more. And th- those months were the hardest of my life, I think. It was like living on a sine wave. Sometimes I was high. I felt full of faith, full of peace. And then other times I was so low. I was terrified and I felt ashamed of being terrified, felt faithless before the Lord that I didn't trust God. I wanted to pray for healing, but I did not presume that I had some right to be protected from what I know brothers and sisters face all the time, facing cancer. And so and many times I didn't even know how to pray. Any of you ever lived under a cloud like that? You know what that's like, isn't it? The tests and the conversations and the waiting and the trying to function and trying to pray and trying to believe and trying to be faithful. You know what it's like. For most of my life, I have known amazing Jesus. And it's easy to follow amazing Jesus. But for four months, I got a glimpse of suffering Jesus. Just a little bit, just a tiny glimpse But it was a chance for me to ask myself an important question. Can I be faithful to Jesus? Can I trust him when he leads me down a path of suffering, maybe even death? Can I believe that Jesus uses these murky moments to shape my soul as much and even more than he uses the moments of brightness and blessing? And when I am so terrified that I don't even know how to pray or breathe, am I willing to hold on to Jesus anyhow? I got the news back uh, from my biopsy three weeks ago. I am benign. It's cancer-free. Even the opening of that email was terrifying, though. I told him, don't tell me by email. What do I get? An email. And so I'm (laughs) staring at, do you open it? Do you not open it? You know, your test results. That's the heading. And then you got to read through it. Several sec- chap- you know, several sections that they're talking about. So, benign. Okay, next one. 
be nine, next one, be nine, you know. It was horrible. It was wonderful. And obviously, I'm gratefully relieved, but this has changed me. I think it, I think it, for one thing, it's going to make me a better pastor, because I will never hear you tell me about this horrifying piece of news and the weight that you're enduring. I, I will never hear that and receive that in the same way again. But I want it to make me a better Christian. I want to be faithful to Jesus when my news is not good, and someday my news will not be good. When my future is not so certain, when answers do not come the way that I would like them to, when I'm afraid, I want to be faithful to Jesus then too, because he was faithful to me. Through his pain, through his suffering, through his death and abandonment, he was faithful to me, and in the end, God used his suffering and his pain to save me and to save you. Jesus isn't always amazing to us. Sometimes he is hidden or even offensive. And the decision we must make, and we better make it now, is in those hard moments, will I cut and run, as did so many of those disciples? Or will I decide right now that Jesus is trustworthy and deserves my faithfulness, whatever?